Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Blessings, WCC. I feel so much confidence here and not there. Chris, never, <laughs> never be sick again. You didn't ask how I did. I killed it. Uh, as in, it died. Um, I love singing with you all. Um, I've mentioned it before. I'm not going to go into detail because we have visitors. But I do have a music background. I've probably played music in front of more people than I have preached. It's... Uh, the kind of music it was, you might not call it music, you might call it noise, but definitely feel a calling to hear uh, behind the pulpit. It's a joy to preach this morning and sing with family um, on that end. Hallelujah. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be in verse 12 through 17. Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. Does it feel like Christmas yet? It, It feels like Christmas to me. I grew up um, in my adulthood, so prior to marrying Amber, I did not like Christmas. I worked retail a lot. I got burned out by it, and that heart of coal is starting to soften as I have children. Uh, Yesterday, we went Christmas shopping for all the kids, and we even bought lights for outside. Um, We're really excited. Um, It feels like Christmas, so Christmas message today. Um, I hope you hopefully are already there. Chapter 4 of Matthew, starting in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew is really early on into his gospel. This is only chapter 4. And, and hands down, my favorite passage in the whole Bible is, is Matthew 5, where we look at the Beatitudes. Uh, he's starting to get momentum very quickly on who this Jesus is. At the very beginning of the gospel, he says, I'm going to introduce you to a genealogy. This person named Jesus, the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew's writing towards a Jewish audience, so that means something to them already. And most of you have heard these things before, but it's bare repeating. And maybe you haven't, and you're blessed to think on these things just briefly. So Jesus as the Messiah means Jesus is the anointed one from God. The anointed one is the one who is to deliver Israel from all of their miseries. 
This would be national miseries. This would be infertility. This would be sickness. This would be the land not producing. The Messiah is coming to bring flourishing on the land and blessing. In the genealogy in chapter 1, he also mentions he's the son of David. This proves that God keeps his promises. He's a God of promises. He doesn't forget them. And when the impossible seems to only be unachievable, he accomplishes it. The the things that, that no one could pull off, God does in all of his might. Throughout the Bible, we're told that through the line of David... The young runt of Jesse, you're going to have a king that will rule on your throne forever. Matthew's saying, this Jesus is is that king. He's the son of Abraham, showing his Jewish descent back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Abraham is told that through your family, you will bless all nations and all families. A seed will come from you. Matthew's really excited, and and we don't get all warm and fuzzy in Matthew chapter 1. Jeff, you might. I think you've preached through it in the past. Maybe you're not warm and fuzzy with genealogies, which means you're normal. But you read through that, and you think of the gravity and the story and redemptive history passing through how God has been faithful and powerful through, through heroes and through villains. God has not been stopped in accomplishing his will. Now, what we see also in chapter 1 about, and we'll get to our text today, but I'm giving you some background. Chapter 1, Jesus is truly God and truly man. The Spirit overshadows Mary, and she's with child. Not only is he of promise, of prophetic fulfillment, but God is to dwell among us. God will be in your midst, Israel. And he will be your brother. We see in chapter 2, the poor, the, the shepherds, the outcasts, they smell, they talk to animals a lot. They come and, and they are worthy to approach the God-man and worship. And, and we see in chapter 2, Wise men from the east come and travel afar to worship this king, this child, this divine. That's just chapter 2 of Matthew. Going to chapter 3, the righteous prophet John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's preaching repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. Favorite prophet hands down. When he preaches of him, he mentions he's going to be a righteous judge. He's going to separate the the wheat from the chaff. Those that are pure in heart, he will collect. Those that are rebellious and hard of heart or just religious but not sincere, they will be burned up in a baptism of fire. He's also a king. He collects those righteous. They enter into his fold. And he rules them supremely. In this chapter, right before we get to our text in verse 12, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness. Led by the Spirit, Luke tells us, he goes 
and fasts for 40 days, and he's under temptation led by Satan himself. Adam was in a beautiful garden with a beautiful lady, and he could do everything but touch one piece of fruit, and he falls. Jesus, without a beautiful woman by his side, without luscious fruit around him, but in the wilderness, susceptible to to the dangers that live out there in the field, he is strong. He does not resist what, uh, sorry, he resists what has been placed before him. He's not going to betray his God. He's not going to follow his own earthly enticements. He's going to be faithful unto the Lord. Now, verse 12 talks about Jesus going and traveling elsewhere in Galilee. There's some span between verse 11 and 12, roughly about a year. Jesus has been doing ministry, and it's dovetailed John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, between 11 and 12, most likely, uh, Jesus has changed the water into the wine. Um, he has been baptized. Uh, he has done several things within this section. But now we see something's changed significantly. John has been placed in prison. John was faithful. John was amazing. He, he went out like some bold, energized prophet, radical prophet, and people responded in a baptism of repentance. They, they washed themselves to signify they are dirty internally and, and they need repentance. They need to change. He said, prepare your hearts for the kingdom is, is coming. And Jesus comes and he preaches the same thing. The kingdom is coming. But it doesn't look like the kingdom is coming. This faithful prophet is arrested. Uh, and he's arrested for calling people out. Uh, Herod Antipas decides he likes his half-brother's wife, who's his half-niece. So he steals his half-niece from his half-brother. This is like Jerry Springer stuff here. And, and, and now they become one. He's power-hungry. There might be a little bit of romance here, but these two people are, are power-energized. John calls them out, which leads to his arrest. The righteous one is locked up. Well, what is Jesus to do? What should Jesus do? Well, if I wanted to spread a religion, if I wanted to, to gain fame and support, I would go to the religious capital within Israel, which would be Jerusalem. But instead, he, he settles in Capernaum. Capernaum is north. Jerusalem is south. All the scholars, all the brilliant minds where Paul kind of develops himself, that's going to be down south. Jesus goes up north. And the readers can wonder, why on earth is he doing this? This makes no sense whatsoever. You know, location, location, location. What we find is he collects some disciples around that area. Some of them are fishermen, most likely not educated. They probably know math because they don't want to be overtaxed. 
And every fisherman wants to be able to count how many fish they have. But he goes up north and he removes himself from the elite. And he's with mixed community. In this passage, it mentions, and within the prophecy, that this is a Gentile populated area. Galilee of the Gentiles, I have in verse 15. So if, if he's to be truly God, truly man, the righteous one, this holy king, why is he among unclean people? Why is he among people that are not his own? He's supposed to conquer them. Is he going there for war? Okay, if he's going there for war, his kingdom is still invincible and he's not carrying a sword. Matthew calms down the excitement. It's easy why he's going up north. It's to fulfill what has been spoken from the prophet Isaiah. He's spoken about Isaiah quite a bit um, thus far in his book. If you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to be in Isaiah 8 and 9 just for a moment. Matthew loosely quotes Isaiah 9. And he quotes it from a Greek text instead of a Hebrew text. So if, if someone says it's not an exact duplicate of what you see in Isaiah 9, that's okay. He's paraphrasing the passage here. In Isaiah 8, I'm going to start in verse 18. This is where Yahweh is speaking judgment on these lands. They're unfaithful. The north was extremely rebellious and they were crushed. They were punished severely. Leading in idolatry, trusting other nations, forsaking the covenants of God, elevating themselves, being enticed with foreign peoples and luxuries. They're crushed. They receive judgment. We hear of it, sorry, in verse 18. Behold, I and the child whom the Lord has given me are the signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So it's questioning, should you seek the wisdom from ghosts and from dead? Should you elevate those that have decayed? Continuing, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no They have no dawn. They will pass through the land and hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. When they will look on the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. Yahweh speaks to his people and says, when you go to your foreign gods... And when you commit those idolatrous actions, they will fail you. You will wring your fist at God and you will ask, where are you? Where have you been? Why are we dying? Why are we starving? Why are we oppressed? God said, because you have not come to me. You have forsaken my word. You have given your heart to another. And I want to stop for application for a moment. Because you might, you, you hear this, you might think, man, I really need to be in my Bible a lot more. 
that might be true. It might be that you're in your Bible a lot, but heart is not engaged in it. At the beginning of the year, I have that, that crazy challenge I give myself with scripture consumption. And I'm going to do it this January because there's nothing wrong with bringing a goal before yourself. But is your heart engaged in it? I've played in many nursing homes with a saint that's been faithful in scripture reading. And I've wondered, has it pricked your heart? Have you found God in it? Or have you found the blessed idol of routine? You, you might be guilting yourself. I can't memorize passages or understand things as well as the elders or someone who's on a platform and, and speaks all the time. Well, they're on a platform and they speak all the time because they're gifted in it. But, but is your heart engaged in it? You can watch someone who speaks really well with eloquence. They're a walking thesaurus. You don't know their heart. God knows your heart. Be faithful in pursuing his word so that you may behold God. That's why we read our Bibles. So that we can behold God. Not just to escape guilt. In chapter 9, Yahweh tells him that he will revisit them again. He says, but there will, no, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, as at the battle of Midian." For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle torment, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Matthew wants them to think of this prophecy. Why is he going to nowhere? Why is he going to a place that is so looked down upon because God desires to visit the lowly. Jesus said this of his ministry. The physician comes for the sick. So if you haven't bowed the knee to Christ, if you don't see him as Lord and Savior, I want to ask why. 
And I also want to assure you that if you feel like you are so far off, to tell you you are not beyond his reach. If you feel like he could not love you, if he's ignored you, if he doesn't see you, if he's embarrassed by you, if you bring nothing to the table, I want to tell you that Jesus loves the humble and he loves the repentant and he saves people with long rap sheets and he's not afraid of them. The contemporaries in Jesus' day would not want to leave home and, and visit an area that is described occupied by Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles did not mix. If they did, it was over money. He pursues it. Matthew wants us to see in this passage, not only is he a pursuer of those that have been unfaithful, but he's also light. Now, light's pretty powerful. And there's, the Bible speaks of light in a number of different ways. And most likely, this is not the first sermon you've heard about the significance of light. That's okay. But I want us to think about something about light. Light sometimes is used just to simply expose things. You can't see something until the lights are on. We all know this. I remember not long ago... I, um, one of my side gigs I did to feed my family was I did some handyman work. And I was sent into a house that had no power, no water. I was very overwhelmed. This house was run down completely. And my employer said, just do something, anything. It was that bad. So I started sweeping, started collecting debris, started moving broken glass, moving rotten wood. And I said, I'm going to just take a tour of this house for a moment um, I, I mean, I hadn't gone far into the house and I was busy with work. So I start looking around and it's dark and I look up and, and the ceiling looked like it had just decayed or evaporated. So I, I did a foolish thing and I took my flashlight and it was covered with cobwebs. I, I could not see white on the ceiling. It was that gross. Before then, I had no clue. The, the gospel does that. Some of you might think you're a really good person or you do okay. But then, but then the light comes on. And it's either you stay and you deal with that sin or you run away and you ignore it. That was a false light. It exposed the wrong thing. When does light lie? It simply reveals Jesus came as a light for all people, which can save us or which judges us further as we don't bend the knee to this king and this great judge. Light reveals truth. I was thinking about this, and I think I'll be, I think it's okay. I prayed through this illustration. As a chaplain at a, at a hospital, I witness individuals that don't know they are among the living. Quite often, I go into the room, I pray with them, though they might not hear my voice. Call family members and say, hey, I'm Chaplain Daniel, I visited so-and-so today. Just spent a couple moments with them, how are you doing? 
and I visited other patients that felt great and they had no clue. They don't have much time. Help them process that, think through that. Priorities change, really scary. Not knowing Jesus, it shuts your eyes from light. Where you stand with God. What is good? What is true? Light also pursues. You turn it on and it rushes faster than sound. To revisit this again, you might feel like you're too far off. Light can't be stopped unless something's placed in front of it. And that's a poor analogy because I don't think you can stop God from anything. But your rebellion can communicate to him, I don't want to submit. So how does Christ serve as a light? We go to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance here, I believe, also means believe. The repentance that Jesus and John speak about is this changing of one's heart, changing of one's mind. I am my own God. I have it my own way. I I know what's best. And instead submitting wholly and, and fully to him. That's repentance. And you might be young in your faith and you think this light, what great miracle is, go- is he going to do? Well, he's going to do many miracles in this gospels and others. But Jesus came primarily to preach. He came to preach. Truly God, truly man came down so he could talk. So, so what's preaching? That, and, and that's a question we maybe should tease out a little bit. Is preaching teaching? It should be. It should always be educating our minds. We should be learning underneath preaching. And, and God is a bottomless ocean where there are more things that we could find out about him and reflect on. There's mysteries in these pages that are worth spending your entire life pondering and celebrating. Sorry, I'm very hot. Excuse me. I can't do that at the hospital. I'll take advantage of it here. Preaching exhorts. It should challenge you. It should tell you this is right, this is wrong. Improve here. It's to instruct. It's to disciple. It's to discipline. It declares not just truth, but divine truth. It reveals to us our own purpose in life, to bring God all glory. That is the reason for preaching. When Jesus came, he came to preach. And the miracles he did were amazing. They were beautiful. It showed his love and his compassion. But he came primarily to preach. And the application that I want for us to pull away from this today is to be preachers. And hear me in context here. I want you to be those that shine a light in darkness. To share the good news that Jesus 
loves sinners. That he has come to rescue sinners. Start in your home and preach the gospel daily. Preach it directly in being in the word, speaking with them when when offenses are made, when fears are voiced. Do it indirectly in what you prioritize, what you enjoy, what you esteem. With your spouse, with your coworker, with your family member, preach the gospel. It doesn't mean you have to have pulpit time. It doesn't mean that you need to be the next Sunday school teacher, and we're going to be asking for some of those soon. Preaching the gospel can mean not only educating, but sharing our purpose in life, exhorting sinners to repent, calling for holiness among the saints, and reminding us time and time again to enjoy God. In closing, Jesus did this practice among some of the most rejected individuals. Time and time again, lovingly. Let's do the same. Let's bow in prayer. True and living God, we thank you that your light has been shown. And we pray, Father God, that we would acknowledge what you have revealed, that all of us are in need of saving, and that we have a sure and confident salvation only in Christ. If there are those today that do not know him, Father, may they seek to know him more. May we as a loving church minister to those that have questions And may we remind ourselves when we have these doubts. And may every Christmas light we see this season remind us, Father, how you came down. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.